Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As you've probably heard by now, and as we mentioned in last week's podcast, uh, Congress recently voted to discard some privacy rules that the previous FCC had put in place last year. Um, the rules which had yet to be implemented were a direct response to a very, very long history of bad behavior and privacy violations by many of the large uh, internet access providers. The decision to remove those rules uh, seem to only be justifiable as a gift to those very same providers. It's almost impossible to find anyone else who uh, supported dumping those rules, uh, and that's across the political spectrum. Actually, a recent poll found that 75% of Republicans and 80% of Democrats wanted President Trump to veto the bill, and instead he signed it, of course. Uh, now, of course, the public wasn't the only one who the only ones who said that these privacy rules shouldn't be rolled back right before the vote on this a bunch of smaller isps wrote a letter to congress asking them to reject the plan uh, this was quite interesting seeing as wiping out those privacy rules might allow those isps to profit further off of their users but unlike the giant isps it seems that some smaller isps certainly recognize that protecting rather than profiting off of their users is a good long-term business strategy and one of those isps uh, is the somewhat famous sonic uh, which provides internet access around the san francisco bay area and i should note that i'm a happy customer of sonic for my home broadband uh, the company is run by ceo dane jasper and he helped get a bunch of isps to sign onto that letter to congress and also work to encourage consumers to reach out to congress and ask them not to get rid of those privacy rules um, I'm going to read a little excerpt from the letter, not the whole thing, just so you get an idea of what was in there. And it said that we urge Congress to preserve the FCC's broadband privacy rules and vote down plans to abolish them. If the rules were repeal are repealed, large ISPs across America would resume spying on their customers, selling their data and denying them a practical and informed choice in the matter. Perhaps if there were a healthy free, transparent, and competitive market for internet services in this country, consumers could choose not to use those companies' products. But small ISPs like ours face many structural obstacles, and many Americans have very limited choices. A monopoly or duopoly on the wireline side and a highly uh, consolidated cellular market dominated by the same wireline firms. Um, so that's that's a quick excerpt from the letter. It's a little bit longer. Uh, EFF has the letter posted at their website if you want to see the whole thing. Uh, now, today on the podcast, we've got Sonic Stain Jasper uh, to talk about the death of those privacy rules and uh, and more issues concerning internet and policy. So welcome, Dane. Thanks much. Appreciate you having me on. Sure. So let's start with these privacy rules. Uh, can you describe kind of what those rules actually entailed and why you as an ISP were actually happy that they existed? Um, yeah, the the rules which were set to take effect uh, at the end of this year, uh, which were uh, put into place by the FCC in 2016, uh, would have prevented internet access providers uh, from uh, engaging in uh, snooping of your internet use looking at the websites you visit, uh, the apps you use, and uh, and sharing that information with third parties, selling that information or using that information uh, to target advertising at you, for example. And uh, so that was the uh, kind of the crux of those uh, of those rules. And why were you okay with those rules, whereas other IS the larger ISPs especially seemed seemed really um, worried about them? Yeah, the the larger carriers, um, you know, have long uh, had an interest in or or a history of um, engaging in um, targeted advertising or um, 
behavioral analysis. Um, uh, you, know, you look back at the sort of the start of the network neutrality issue uh, was around uh, Comcast's blocking of BitTorrent traffic, and that really would set right. off that that push. Uh, you look at uh, Verizon with their mobile service doing what were called super cookies that uh, right. allowed them to sort of track you across the web. And uh, and then uh, in in the launch of their GigaPower service, AT&T offered, uh, I think it was called Privacy Choices, um, right. an option for lower-priced service uh, if you were comfortable with them looking at your usage and, and, and changing the way advertisements were displayed to you. So... I think large carriers have long had an interest in uh, the ability to maximize the um, the scope of revenue opportunities out of the uh, out of the services that they're providing. And um, I, I mean, I think th this isn't um, you know evil or nefarious per se. This is business. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if there's an opportunity to take a um, a a captive market, uh, you know, uh, you know. Today, the uh, the cable and telco, uh, the incumbent carriers in any given market, uh, serve the vast, vast majority of internet access, uh, and uh, insurgent providers um, like Ting or Socket or Google Fiber or Sonic uh, certainly serve. Uh, you know, nationally, a uh, single-digit uh, percentage of consumers. And so those large carriers that serve the majority of the consumers are naturally looking for additional ways to, to monetize this sort of captive audience of consumers that they have. And um, so that's, you know, the motivation that those large carriers have. Sure. But, but I think, you know, I mean, there's an argument that could be made that, I mean, those guys have such a large market um, that, you know, they get, they get the volume. So, you know, whereas, you, you know, some, some would argue that, that you and all those, the, the other, you know, sort of upstart, um, or smaller independent or however you want to frame them, ISPs, um, you know, might even be more interested in, in, in doing those things because you have a smaller base to work off of. And so if you could, you know, sort of extend the profits from each of them, you know, um, yeah, you could, but but you've sort of chosen not to do that. Yeah, I, uh, there's there's two concerns that I have around this, mm -hmm. um, and this is applicable to both the question of neutrality, and and the idea of monetizing certain types of content or sources of content, mm -hmm. and privacy. You know, the idea that you could monetize consumer behaviors by by looking at what they're doing on the internet. Um, both of these. Um, are, and more so with neutrality than privacy, but I think both of these are a much larger opportunity for large incumbent carriers. And, uh, you know, the easiest way to look at that is, is through the lens of neutrality and, and look at the, um, uh, the disputes between large telco and large cable carriers and Netflix specifically, uh -huh. and um, the uh, um, constraint of capacity <laughs> uh, towards <laughs> their consumers sure. that led to Netflix making payments to remove those constraints. Right. And so, in other words, a large cable operator who has more than 50% of the consumers in a given market is able to say to Netflix or YouTube, or Hulu, or Amazon Prime, etc. Um, look, we have more than half of the customers, and your service is really poor to those folks because there's inadequate capacity between our network and yours. And in order to gain access to those consumers at an unconstrained uh, speed, uh, you need to pay us a nickel or a dime or a quarter per customer per month. And, uh, you know, that was a successful effort, and, and Netflix <laughs> reportedly made those payments. Right. Those constraints were lifted. And, um, but that is an opportunity that I believe is isolated to the incumbent. If you are an, a, a small new market entrant, 
uh, Google Fiber or Sonic offering uh, gigabit fiber services, uh, and you have a tiny percentage of the market, you know, even regionally, let alone nationally, and you trot over to Netflix and you say, hey, Netflix, uh, <laughs> you're, you're paying uh, this large cable operator X for every consumer. Uh, we'd like that money, too. Um, Netflix is going to look at their statistics and see that a small minority of their customers are being affected by your uh, capacity constraints that, that might be in place. And they'll say, no, thank you. Uh, you're hurting yourself more than you're hurting us. And so one of the concerns I have is that this creates an unlevel playing field for right. competitive new market entrants. And, you know, one of the, you know, principal causes that is, um, you know, that I fight for is a level competitive playing field in a free market. And where you have uh, a scenario where an incumbent operator, as a result of their scale, is able to create barriers to new market entrants or an unlevel playing field for new market entrants, I think that that restrains the potential for a competitive free market. Now, this applies also to the privacy side. And, uh, you know, the idea that advertisers would partner with carriers to analyze consumer behaviors and deliver um, behavior and demographically targeted advertising. Um, I think advertisers are going to partner with large carriers before they partner with small carriers. Um, so one side of my concerns around neutrality and privacy is that it can tip the balance towards incumbents from a level playing field perspective and hamper new market entrants who seek to bring, you know, innovative new broadband products to consumers. Now, the second area of concern, and, and I think this is one that uh, is, a, is, is more idealistic, is, you know, Sonic's success over the 20 years that, uh, that we've been in business um, has been in selling consumers subscription access to this wonderful thing, the Internet. And um, it's tempting to take credit for all the great <laughs> stuff that's on the Internet and say, well, we're the gatekeepers here, and, and you know, you don't get access to all that stuff unless you, you pay us, and to effectively be the, the, the toll taker along the way. But the fact of the matter is, you know, consumers love you know, Netflix and Facebook and Twitter and Tinder and what they do online to find a job or shop or uh, engage in social activities or be entertained or work, um, all of those activities, you know, are a credit to this innovative ecosystem of disruptive Internet applications, apps, and tools. And so whether it's around privacy, which, um, you know, if people feel like their every step is being watched, I don't think they'll be as comfortable using new applications and making hmm. uh, the Internet as, uh, as deeply a part of their lives, or around neutrality, uh, if, you know, the next great idea requires high bandwidth uh, or high speed, uh, that is tonnage versus burst performance or low latency for interactive use. Um, all those things that, that could be affected by, you know, paid carriage and paid prioritization. Um, if all those great ideas have to be filtered through the lens of, well, what will we have to pay the last mile carrier to get this to the consumer? I think it puts that innovative ecosystem at risk. And, uh, you know, I feel really lucky to be able to provide people access to the Internet, to charge a subscription fee for a broadband product. And uh, idealistically, um, you know, I think it's critical that we allow that innovation ecosystem as much freedom as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is funny when you see sort of the, the larger ISPs that seem to want to take credit <laughs> for the Internet as opposed to the fact that they're just sort of providing access to the Internet. Yeah, there's been some, you know, I think the rhetoric was, uh, you know, writing our pipes for right. free. 
uh, is kind of the concept. But, uh, you know, I flip that around. Consumers pay us to carry them, uh, carry their traffic to and from the Internet. Um, I can't take credit for the Internet. And Netflix is not riding my pipes for free. Consumers who pay me a subscription fee are doing so because they want to get Netflix. Right. And, and that's the, you know, in my belief, the, the, the ultimate direction that the, the payment should come from. And, and this is, uh, you know, it dovetails into for me um, things like pricing for speed um, seem reasonable to me. Uh, caps on total usage. I think those are a fair way to, to engage in pricing. Although Sonic does neither of those, you know, mm -hmm. we offer a detiered product with unlimited consumption. But if a service writer says, well, you're buying 25 megabits and that's going to be your maximum speed, that's fair and reasonable and transparent. If a service writer says you get 200 gigabytes per month, that's fair and reasonable and transparent. Um, but if behind the scenes the, con the service writer um, you know, engages in a non-transparent financial transaction with the websites that and services that you're trying to get to, I think that really twists the model. Um, well, that, that raises a question. If, you know, if you're okay with sort of broadband caps and things as if they're, when they're clearly stated, um, do you have an opinion on sort of the whole zero rating question? Yeah. Um, Zero rating is in the same category as network neutrality in mm -hmm. creating a risk to the ecosystem. Um, so what zero rating does is exempts certain content from the consumption caps. So you know you have a, and this has been applied mostly to wireless services. You have a wireless service, you're paying for you know X gigabytes per month, but if you watch video on this chosen site it doesn't count. And um, that, you know, favors generally an affiliated entity and um, uh, creates an unlevel playing field for a different um, over-the-top entity that is not directly affiliated. And so I think um, zero rating um, creates the same problems for me that, that uh, in, in this case, it's the lack of a payment um, in that the consumer is not using up their um, consumption cap or their, uh, or their metered total consumption, but the outcome is the same. And so I think zero rating is a problem. I don't think, though, data caps are a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think consumers don't like them and, and shouldn't like them. Um, and I think consumers should shop for services that don't have data caps. Um, but at least data caps are out in the open, crystal clear, um, and, uh, and and something that consumers can shop for. Yeah, I mean there are there are some related concerns about how accurately <laughs> data consumption is measured sometimes, and some of the tools there are, are not always the the greatest. But yeah. at, at least it is it is clearly stated. Uh, you know, I think my my personal sort of I, I'm. You know, I, and I guess I sort of approach it certainly from the consumer side, obviously not from the pr provider side. You know, one of my issues with sort of data caps, I think, sort of goes back to kind of the early days of the internet and what you saw when you know the the sort of early ISPs when you had you know AOL and whoever else who were offering access to the internet, but but on like an hourly basis, mm -hmm. and you saw like you didn't really get the adoption. Yep. Until you know things went to unmetered, and then suddenly that's when sort of the innovation bloomed. And, and so my fear is that you know if if you sort of and you know this hasn't necessarily happened, but if you if you continually sort of have the caps too low, then you sort of limit the innovation that that can come out of it. Well, I mean, there's an argument that the caps uh, historically have been set where they uh, uh, where they were specifically to limit innovation, particularly in the video <laughs> ecosystem. Sure. And so you look at, um, you know, you look at Nielsen data about how much television viewing a typical household does in a given month. It's a shockingly large number. Right. How much television viewing a typical individual does in a given month. It's a pretty large number. And then you, if you take that and you say, well, a certain amount of that is, at, is high definition, a certain amount is standard definition, 
and let's look at the total payload capacity. How many gigabytes would it take per month to replace typical television viewing in a household? And um, it's hundreds of gigabytes. Right. And I, and what we've seen as uh, common caps, and, and you know, these are starting to go up at this point, but uh, often we saw like 200 gigabyte caps. Well, if a household watches X hours of TV a day, and half of it's HD, and that works out to being you know two or three times that cap, then it is impossible for there to be an over-the-top replacement for traditional television in the household on a one-for-one -one basis, assuming consumer behaviors are going to remain the same. And uh, so why were the caps set there? Well, you know, one argument is that that protected the pay TV ecosystem right. and, you know, made it very hard for a new market entrant to, uh, to replace pay TV. Now, we're starting to see caps increasing. Terabyte caps are much more common today. And at the same time, we're seeing all of this innovation in the pay TV ecosystem. And so if you want a package of channels, you don't necessarily have to get those from your cable company or one of two satellite companies anymore. Today, you can now get those over the top from Sling TV, which is owned by one of the two satellite companies, Direct TV Now, which is you know the other satellite company, which is now owned by AT&T, or um, the Sony View product, uh, Hulu has a TV product coming. YouTube launched a TV product just this uh, quite recently. And um, so there's a lot of innovation happening where, you know, television is becoming an app and you could subscribe to one of those apps for six months and then decide you like the channel lineup of a different one, uh, subscribe to that for a little while and cancel the other one. And uh, I think as consumers begin to uh, take that up in greater quantities, I think there'll be a real change in the way that people consume video. And uh, and I certainly applaud those efforts. It's great to see that happening. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about just competition in the broadband market. And this is something that we've been talking about on TechDirt for pretty much since the beginning, um, which is now approaching 20 years, which is a little crazy. But, um, you know, one of the things that... that we've said is that so many of these problems are really the result of a, a lack of competition. Um, and I know that, you know, that was addressed in that, in that letter, um, that you guys sent about the privacy stuff. Um, you know, wh why is it that there's so little competition? Why, why are there, you know, you know, there, are, we, we see sort of pockets of it happening, but why are there sort of so few Sonics out there and why are most people just kind of limited to, to the major providers? It's a, um, yeah, I mean, that really gets to the crux of, of a lot of the stuff that I focus on. And, um, uh, you know, for those that are interested in some of the details, um, I wrote an article a few years ago called America's Intentional um, Broadband Duopoly. And, um, you know, it talks, this article, uh, you know, addresses some of the regulatory history that, um, that doomed many of the early competitive carriers. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, to your point uh, of, you know, a, a lack of adequate competition um, is, I think, the cause of a lot of the issues around neutrality and privacy. Mm -hmm. If consumers had 15 different Internet services to choose from, all of which offered... Um, good performance, um, what you would find is that prices would come down, policies and practices would improve. And uh, so, you know, I would argue that we have effectively a failed competitive market. Um, you know, most consumers uh, who want a fast broadband connection, a fast modern broadband connection, have only one choice. And um, so, you know, that um, results in um, a lot of the issues that we see in this market, and and I'll reference another uh, another article I wrote a, a a thing that was titled "Network uh, Neutrality uh, is Just a Symptom," and you know the crux of that is that you know whether it's neutrality or privacy, if you only have one or two choices, um, 
the market, the free market, is not going to correct um, for this. And uh, so, you know, we've been an advocate for network neutrality and, and for privacy rules, but I also believe that regulation of that um, wouldn't be necessary in an environment where consumers had a lot more choices and, uh, and that CARES would compete on policies and compete on practices. And it could be that, you know, one, uh, you know, engages in, in uh, behaviors around privacy or network neutrality that is, is the polar opposite of the other. And, um, and maybe they're a cheaper service because they're able to monetize privacy or monetize neutrality on the other side. But when you only have one or two providers to choose from, that's, that's not a, uh, an appropriate outcome. Um, but and and but what do you think, you know specifically? And I and I know you've written an article about, but but if if you could summarize, like why, <laughs> like why did it it reach this point? I mean, I, I sort of think back to obviously, you know, in the in the dial-up days where there was you know a ridiculous amount of competition, and and basically anyone could you know you you had you know thousands of <laughs> of options. Yeah, there um, used to be a there used to be a like a yellow pages published yeah that and uh, it was originally like boardwatch magazine and it became this sort of isp uh list and they published a yellow pages that was <laughs> uh thousands of internet providers you'd look up your state and then you'd look up your area code and you'd say oh i'm in the 415 area and and here's the 20 different providers i can choose from and um uh, so this is, uh, I'll, I'll try to not go too deep, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you probe more deeply if, it, uh, if you want to, because uh, you know, this is an interesting and kind of tortured <laughs> technology and regulatory history. Yeah. But at the, at the baseline, uh, it, it's a shift from uh, a common carriage model where the infrastructure was uniform and available to all, to um, a model where the infrastructure is um, unique to each carrier and and therefore a monopoly and so you think about you know when you wanted to be in the dial-up internet access business um, and you know we started this uh, in 1994 and you ordered some phone lines and right. you bought some modems and a set up a couple Linux boxes, and you're an ISP. <laughs> and you were using a common carriage ingredient, which was phone lines. Right. Anybody could buy a phone line. They all cost everybody the same amount of dollars, and, uh, and thus anybody could be an ISP. As there was a migration to DSL, initially DSL was also common carriage. And so ISPs segued from dial-up lines to DSL lines effectively and uh, and those were available um, at a uniform price point to to all ISPs but when internet access was reclassified from being a telecommunication service and classified instead as an information service right it became discretionary and therefore not common carriage and so as, uh, and there was a sequence of decisions in the uh, early to mid 2000s uh, by the FCC and by the um, uh, DC Circuit and the Supreme Court, which kind of set us up on this path. Uh, and this is a divergent path from you know, the direction that Europe, for example, went. So, um, the regulatory history in the U.S. is um, in 1996, uh, we passed a bipartisan Telecommunications Act. Um, a Republican Congress, a Republican-led Congress, uh, President Clinton, uh, a Democratic president. Um, so a bipartisan bill uh, was the only bill to ever be signed uh, in the Library of Congress, uh, which was really a nod to the um, uh, the idea that this act would uh, create access to information and education. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the 1996 Telecommunications Act um, created a framework for infrastructure 
unbundling, separating the physical infrastructure, which would be a common carriage component, from the value-added services that, you know, internet access, telephone service, long-distance service that would ride over that. And um, uh, the European Union followed the U.S. with similar regulation. And uh, the difference has been that the European Union has stuck with that concept of separation between infrastructure as an essential um, regulated monopoly or last mile um, common carriage component. And the U.S., which in the early 2000s began to retreat from that. Um, so, um, for example, while telecommunications carriers, you know, the seven regional Bell operating companies, Pacific Bell, Nevada Bell, Southwestern Bell, etc., had an obligation to unbundle and provide wholesale access to last mile facilities. Cable companies did not. And uh, so the FCC ruled that cable companies did not need to open access to their infrastructure. Um, and that that FCC decision was challenged. That's the Brand X decision. Right. Brand X versus FCC was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court, who found that this was the FCC's jurisdiction. So they had the opportunity to make that decision. And so this and the classification of Internet access as an information service, not a telecommunication service. Uh, and, um, and then uh, finally, um, a forbearance decision, which means um, a decision by the FCC not to enforce uh, its own regulations, right. was applied to new fiber construction. So this kind of froze in time. Uh, if uh, telecommunications carriers were going to build new fiber infrastructure, they had no obligation to unbundle it and make it available to competitors. And so the sequence of choices that were made in the early 2000s really set us on this path of infrastructure duopoly. And uh, so where that leaves us today uh, is that competitors, um, in order to um, enter the market and, and bring a competitive service, need to replicate all of the infrastructure. Um, if you want to bring a, a, you know, a gigabit product to customers, you have to build new fiber. And um, that is um, not as efficient as the uh, structural unbundling environment in Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, it's led to challenges, you know, that have, that have made effectively the competitive Internet access industry that, that we are a part of um, uh, not nearly as relevant in the U.S. And so U.S. consumers pick from one or two providers in most cases. Um, whereas in Europe, someone might have 15 to 50 different choices, the result being a, a, a lower cost, more product innovation, maybe better customer service or, or uh, policy practices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible to me. I, I remember, and I, I've spoken about this before or written about it as well. Um, you know, in, in 1996, um, when I was in business school, I had this professor, um, Alan McAdams, who, who was very, very focused on this issue and, and, and sort of saw all of this coming, um, which is, I was, you know, in retrospect was, was pretty impressive, but he, he had been pitching from, you know, around that time, possibly before, um, this idea that, you know, he, he was talking about that, the, you know, you know, get the infrastructure laid. And, and he was saying like, um, you know, the best fiber possible. And he, I don't even remember the specifics, but I remember him saying at the time, this is, you know, again in 96, that everyone was focusing on the wrong kind of fiber, which I don't, I don't know what the differences were. Um, but he was saying like, get the absolute best fiber laid and then, you know, put the competition at the service level, not the infrastructure level, because it's, you know, it, it makes no sense yeah. to, to have the competition at the infrastructure level. It, it is a natural monopoly. And, um, you know, other natural monopolies are power delivery, water delivery, uh, railroads. Um, you know, you don't want uh, 50 different railroad lines coming into, you know, downtown your city. Right. Um, and you don't want 50 different companies putting up power lines to get to your house. <laughs> it's not just that you don't want that to occur because it's 
uh, you know, an eyesore and, and, and physically uh, impossible, but it's also inefficient and costly. And so the, the model of uh, shared last mile facilities, whether those are electric lines or a railroad line or a fiber optic line, uh, is a recognition that there is an efficiency in this natural monopoly. That monopoly, uh, a regulated one, and then over the top of it, vibrant competition, many different service providers innovating in the way that they light the fiber the, right. or in power, the way that they generate power, the customer service, the pricing, uh, the policies, all of those components. And um, you know what we've ended up with in the U.S. instead is um, a, um, you know, think of that as sort of a uh, railroad barons situation <laughs> uh, where, you know, you have a, a you know, a limited number of um, cable and telco operators who have an effective monopoly on the last mile. And, uh, and the outcome is that, uh, you know, Americans pay more for their internet access and other telecommunication services than other developed nations. And um, internet access providers, uh, I think Sonic, uh, we hope to not be in this category, but internet access providers are one of the most disliked uh, industries right. in America. So, um, you know, I would argue that that, that that hasn't been a great outcome for, uh, for American consumers. Do you think, because this always comes up, um, if there, you know, is there a possibility of new competition coming from different means such as, you know, satellite or, you know, there's always the, the, the you know, from the sky, um, you know, whether it's balloons or, mm. or uh, you know, blimps or whatever. This is like things yeah. that people have been raising for, for uh, you know, over a decade now and, and we sort of laugh them off each time. But, you know, is that a possibility that you could find new competition from, well, you know, usually I mean, there's the air? I mean, there's lots of... Um, you know, as you point out, sort of experimental concepts. Um, there's a lot of money being poured into low orbit satellite systems. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, there's a project called OneWeb. Uh, there's another that SpaceX is working on. And uh, so the idea is that you have this constellation of hundreds or maybe even thousands of small satellites that that would eliminate the latency problem of you know going all the way up to a single satellite that's in geosynchronous orbit, which is many times further away from right. a, a low Earth orbit where the satellites are respective to you moving around, and therefore you need lots and lots of them. Uh, so, <clears throat> but those efforts seem to be more focused on filling the gaps. Right. The gaps at sea, the gaps in very rural markets, the gaps in developing nations, uh, because satellites are really costly and running a network like that will be expensive. Um, you know, there's also experimental ideas, solar airplanes, balloons, giant blimps, things like that. I think most of those are focused on um, getting the developing world, uh, the rural parts of the developing world connected to a modern economy, a modern educational platform of the internet. Um, that said, um, in, in a more practical, pragmatic, and like today um, arena, uh, wireless ISPs, terrestrial fixed wireless ISPs, are one of the fastest growing competitive segments. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's a wireless ISP association, and and their membership is, um, you know, growing very quickly year over year, and uh, in many ways it feels like the dial-up days to me when I look at uh, at groups like that, and they are meeting needs, you know, particularly in underserved, uh, mm -hmm. more rural markets that have been neglected. Um, as to the upgrades and availability of um, cable uh, or DSL, traditional telco and, and cable company products. And uh, so that's an area where, you know, there is, um, you know, real world success and it, it's great to see that. The other is, you know, fiber optic overbuilders, uh, you mm -hmm. know, companies like Google Fiber and Ting and Sonic ourselves mm -hmm. uh, who are building new fiber facilities to uh, residents and businesses and connecting them. 
Um, and that is um, certainly not as experimental or um, intriguing as you know blimps and uh, solar airplanes. <laughs> sure. Um, but it? but it delivers gigabit today um, right. in um, in a very um, construction uh, capital intensive way. It's very costly to build. Uh, takes a lot of time uh, to to build these networks, um, but the costs of operating them are very low. The capacity that can be delivered um, is is great, and um, you know I think there's there's sort of an overarching message to be brought here. Is I feel like consumers in the marketplace may be unaware that they have competitive choices, and so there's this sort of resigned feeling of moving into a new place, have to call the cable company and get internet. <laughs> yeah. And um, that th there may be more options for them, and I encourage people to look. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a national broadband map um, where folks can put in an address and find uh, carriers in their, in their area. Uh, there are competitive carrier trade associations that have membership lists online. Uh, FISPA, F-I-S-P-A. Uh, is one of those org and WISPA, which is the wireless association, WISPA.org. Um, but you know, if folks look for you know Google for internet access in city name, uh, yeah. they'll find lots and lots of advertisements for the big cable incumbent, the big telco incumbent, and agents who sell for them. But look more deeply and see what the alternatives are. And um, uh, you know, in some markets, there's WebPass, who does a great job uh, connecting apartment buildings. Uh, in uh, in San Francisco, competing with us, um, there's Monkey Brains, wonderful mm -hmm. uh, wireless provider, and uh, and I think a lot of consumers, you know, even in a market where you might be able to get WebPass or Monkey Brains or Sonic, just think, well, gotta call the cable <laughs> company, yeah. and um, and I would encourage consumers to look further, and uh, you know, and and. And, and shop with their values. You know, look for performance and price, and policies, and customer service, customer reviews, um, and and make a purchasing decision that's based not just on the default decision, but you know, looking at the complete competitive field. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll admit, <laughs> um, when I moved into my place, I used someone else for a while. And then finally realized that Sonic was actually available <laughs> where I lived, and and uh, switched to you guys. A few, it's, it's been a while now, but um, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was it's sort of interesting just to to figure out you know who's available in, in in what area. Yeah, and you know it is a little bit frustrating. I think it's easier to complain about the cable company than it is to take action and switch. And uh, but it's only by doing that latter action that you support the developing competitive field and you, you make a statement that, you know, you'd like a different product or you'd like an alternative. And, um, you know, it's been interesting to watch, uh, you know, as Google Fiber has struggled um, with um, the speed of their deployments, the, 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 the uptake of their deployments. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, this is not um, a foregone conclusion that, you know, you can just build a network and suddenly solve this problem. Right. Cons consumers are a part of uh, the problem, and I, I hate to lay that at their feet, but um, fundamentally, if a large percentage of the people in a market want gigabit fiber internet that is reliable, high speed, uh, and unlimited. Uh, if a majority of the market want that, generally speaking, in most markets, that is more than enough dollars to right. build that network. Um, and uh, you know, but there is a, a, a sense of inertia or complacency uh, where folks, uh, you know, they might be unhappy with what they have, but but yet they don't shop for alternatives. And and I would encourage folks, you know, no matter where you're located. You know, if you don't like what you have right now, take a moment and see what else is available. And, um, you know, look at providers other than the incumbent cable and telecommunications carrier if, if you're not happy with their service. Yeah. And on, on that note, just as a sort of a final question, I guess, um, 
what uh, do you have any opinion? I guess on on a lot of people these days are starting to focus on questions around municipal broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of either public-private partnerships with with different cities or or counties or whatever. Um, how do you feel about that movement? I, I guess I've got um, uh, I have mixed feelings about it, um, mm-hmm. and the idea that a municipality uh, will look at the uh, incumbent operators and say, you know, our city's residents are not being treated adequately with respect to um, upgrades to the network or customer service or pricing or whatever the pain points are. Um, so we, we the public, and, and in the form of the city, want to build a network that's better. Uh, I think that that is good. Um, where I have concerns about that is where that um, becomes a monopoly itself. Right. And so what you're trading is, um, you know, a, a duopoly that you're frustrated with <laughs> for a municipal monopoly that might sound like a great idea now, but what will it be in customer service, technology, reliability, and innovation five and 10 and 20 years from now? And so the trade out of a duopoly you're frustrated with for a monopoly that, you know, might be your city. But, um, but isn't truly competitive, um, isn't, I think, the outcome uh, that will serve the public best in the long run. Now, if a municipality builds the conduit, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm, I'm sort of torturing the word there, what I mean by that is not just the conduit that's in the ground, uh, but the fiber that's in it and the conduit for light, the fiber optic cable, that goes to every premise, and they bring that back to a central point, and then they invite all comers to use that fiber to get to premises. Um, I think that that leads to an innovative ecosystem. And what you're creating there is that natural underlying infrastructure monopoly, which is relatively low cost to maintain, there, uh, there's limited until it breaks. You know, until somebody digs through it or, or hits a pole <laughs> with a car. Until right. it breaks, um, there isn't customer service or billing concerns or technology at the ends. Uh, so I think it is a natural fit for uh, a city to operate that conduit, that that fiber optic conduit for light, back to a central point, and then service providers co-locate equipment at that central point and choose to deploy different technology over that fiber. Now there's been sort of a middle ground where municipalities have said we want to be open access but we're going to run the equipment on the ends and unfortunately Mm. that forecloses a lot of the innovation potential right? because they make a technology decision. We're going to deploy a, uh, a, a split passive optical network with gigabit PON technology. It has a certain carrying capacity. And then service providers are going to buy a package that's 100 megabits or 250 megabits or 1 gigabit at price X, Y, and Z. And um, uh, Utopia, the Utopia network in Utah is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. And what you end up with is a field of you know four or five providers and everybody charges, has those three or four different tiers of service, all the prices are very similar, there's very little innovation aside from in, you know, arguably maybe customer service or something, or how close to the wholesale cost can you drive the price of service. In a dark fiber environment where carriers have access to dark fiber, a good example of this is StockAB in Stockholm. Hmm. Um, The municipality operates... um, a um, a captive entity which um, delivers dark fiber to all premises and service providers can buy a dark fiber strand and then maybe they deliver active ethernet at a gigabit symmetric. Maybe they use a pond technology to drive down costs. Maybe they're deploying gigabit pond or maybe they're delivering 10 gigabit e-pond. So the point is there's a lot of technology decisions that can be made on the ends of that fiber. Right. Um, and the refresh cycle for that, um, you know, today we're kind of in the midst of, you know, GPON, 
uh, gigabit pond being the most widely deployed U technology in the US, um, while in, in Asia, one gigabit EPON or Ethernet PON is the most widely deployed technology. And that is iterating to XGS PON in the US uh, and some international markets, which is 10 gigabit capable, 10 gigabit EPON. And then there's an NGPON2 technology, which brings 10 gigabit times 40 wavelengths. And so lots and lots of capacity. Um, mm. So, you know, the point is a municipal dark fiber network which is open to all carriers um, is, I think, a great opportunity. Huh. Um, that's that's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought too much about that distinction before. I, I mean, so you gave the, the example in, in Sweden. Is there anyone in the U.S. that's doing that? Um, open access dark fiber. Um, I know that Huntsville, Alabama mm -hmm. is, uh, is working towards that, um, but that's the the only example I'm aware of. Um, Utopia is um, a municipal open access uh, bit stream, so they run the equipment right. on the ends. Um, and then the uh, far end of the spectrum is municipal monopoly. So the examples right. of that are, are like Chattanooga's Electricity and Power Board, or EPB, uh, the Lafayette LUS network. And uh, so, you know, I think municipal monopoly um, is, you know, forecloses the idea of competitive innovation mm -hmm. in favor of a, a near-term solution to the duopoly problem. Uh, Bitstream access, uh, while it might be open to more service providers who could innovate in customer service or pricing, uh, it forecloses the possibility of true technology innovation on the fiber itself. Whereas an open access dark fiber network um, like Stockab, um, or you know potentially what Huntsville is uh, is talking about deploying, um, could yield truly open competitive access. Huh, that's very interesting. Um, anyways, I, I could keep going on this because it's really interesting to me. But I know I've taken up more time of yours than I than I promised, and and. Uh, uh, I want to let you go, but but thanks so much. This is, this is really really interesting. I'm sure everyone listening will will agree. Um, and and thanks for for taking the time and and going through this this discussion. I'm sure that uh, you know there's a lot of stuff going on, um, and there'll be a lot more stuff to discuss. So we'd love to have you back sometime in the in the future as as uh, as more developments happen. Yeah, happy to talk about it. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to chat today. Great, great. And uh, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.